Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. This is the non-fun version. I am Todd Atkins. I'm hosting today with Daniel M. Hello, hello. He's making it not fun. I'm trying to keep us, you know, on task here. Look, we've, we've already had an 11 minute great tangent conversation with Bethany Jenkins and we haven't even started it yet. You won't press record because you like to be all professional and stuff. <laughs> I like to let people in behind the scenes. I want them to know about what's going on in Boston and what the weather you know, is. That's why you need to black up, ice. That's why you need to up your Instagram game why? and get on Insta stories because that's where the behind the scenes lives. It's true. I, I, I barely see. post anything except for on stories anymore. See, there we go. Mm, Bethany's where it's at. <laughs> so, I like the Instagrams. <laughs> All right. So, who you are I'm hearing on. right now, uh, that's Bethany Jenkins, who is the vice president of forums and content at the Veritas Forum, a contributor at the Gospel Coalition, and a senior fellow at the King's College. So, uh, you know, her, her, her bio continues to go on, but what behind the scenes we were talking about was she's a New Yorker. Well, you know, had, had been living there for quite a while and now she's in Boston and we were talking about where she's going to move next and if it was going to go back to New York or not. So why, Bethany, do you like New York better than Boston? Oh, see, <laughs> you just went there. I, I was being kind. I didn't go there. Look who's nice and not nice now. Bethany. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to, I'm going to stick with you, Todd. Thank you. Um, yeah. I'll give you, I've, I've actually thought a lot about this question because Boston in its own right is, has a lot of value. Obviously I've lived here when both the Red Sox and the Patriots have taken home national titles. Nice. I feel like I'm ready to go on a, on a, <laughs> on a high at this point, yeah. but, uh, there's something about New York that is, um, you know, having lived there 13 years, I no longer have a honeymoon stage with it. It mm. at some point became home. And so it is just where, where I feel the most, I, I actually lived in New York longer than the city I grew up in, which is in Florida. And so it feels, New York feels a lot like home, but there are lots of reasons. One is weather in Boston is actually pretty terrible. Um, mm. One of the things I was saying earlier is that I was on a run last winter and I fell on black ice and I actually got a huge black eye. Um, so that was not attractive. I had to tell the TSA agent that I didn't have a boyfriend who was beating me basically. <laughs> um, Cause I had to fly. Yes. I was yeah. going to Northern California and I had to fly and I wanted to allay any concerns of having an abusive boyfriend. Um, but so I, I, the weather's pretty terrible. Um, there is nothing like Central Park that, um, in terms of it really brings so much mental health as well mm. as a place to go. Cities need green areas. And so New York has this huge, beautiful green area. And I think the best thing about the city is that being a New Yorker, I wish I could say this about the church in some ways, but being a New Yorker just is the identity that trumps all identities. So you okay. can come from wherever. And if you're a New Yorker, you're kind of like, look at each other with a wink, like, Oh, I know who you are. <laughs> like, I gotcha. I gotcha. And so, um, it doesn't matter that. if you grew up in Pensacola, Florida, where I did, or my best friend from law school is half Chinese, half Indian, grew up in Singapore and married a black guy from New Jersey. Like we're both, all of us are New, New Yorkers. And so there's just something really beautiful about like, that identity trumps so many others. Well, that's neat. Um, which is fun. Yeah. yeah. So is, is what brought you to Boston then the Veritas form? That's right. Okay. So when David Hobbit, who's the executive director of Veritas, um, recruited me to come here, my very first sentence to him was, Oh, that's, that's kind of you to re to think of me for Veritas, but I'm not leaving New York. Mm. Um, he said, oh, okay, well come for six months and get to know the team, get to know the organization. Um, Cause I was senior enough that I needed to actually know the culture cause I'd be affecting it more so. Um, and so he was like, come be here for six months and you can go back to New York. And you know, one thing led to another cause I really don't think I would have said yes had mm. I known what the end result was, but I found this charming apartment it was owned by a couple who um, go to a PCA church in my neighborhood. We had friends in common. I rented from them for a year and then I signed another year. And so now it's been, you know, 18 months. 
but in August, it's the end of two years and I'm not staying. So we'll see where I go next, but it's <laughs> oh, the no. end of that chapter. It is the end of that chapter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Bethany, before we get into the questions, uh, you know, this is very exciting for me. I, I've, I've loved to, you know, not the only thing I really know about Veritas are the YouTube videos and the yeah. great content that you guys have put out. So, I mean, for the rest of our listeners, just give us a snapshot of uh, Veritas and your mission and what what y'all are doing. Uh, and then we'll be sure to link to some videos in the in the show notes, too. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So Veritas started in 1992 when a group of Harvard students um, decided they wanted to think about faith from an intellectual perspective and not just love Jesus with their hearts, which is wonderful and great, but also think about loving Jesus with their minds. What did that look like? And so they started, the, they had the first Veritas Forum. It was just one um, at Harvard in 1992. Stanford came a couple of years later and then so on and so on until now we have about 125 across the world every year. So I think we've had about 1500 since the founding. Wow, that's incredible. Um, yeah, it's amazing. And we're all, we're, with the except with one exception, we're exclusively on non-Christian college campuses where um, where people's obstacles to faith are quite intellectual, mm-hmm. um, and the the reputation of Christianity is you can't think and be a Christian, mm-hmm. and so um, it's really fun because we've um, we've we've gone through a lot of changes in the past couple of years. We're in, we're in a little bit of a 2.0 season, just because the culture has changed so much, and so in 1992 you could really get people to come and, you know, come to an event where a Christian was speaking, but now you really can't assume that anybody has any knowledge of what Christianity is in the, at least in the campuses where we're working. And so we've had to readjust. So we're having a lot of fun at thinking about, I mean, the mission really hasn't changed in terms of reaching the university community with the plausibility of Christianity. Um, that's not our official mission, but it's the way I like to say it. Um, yeah. But we're, the way we're ex- we're trying things out to figure that out, how to do that is changing, which has really been a fun season to be here for sure. That's neat. Can you give us a little bit of insight as to what, what y'all are trying to do now? Or, yeah, or I'll give you one yet? example. It It is a little, I, I do have some thoughts on one of your questions, but one of, I'll give you one example is um, a couple of years ago, uh, well, several years ago at this point, there was a student at um, Dartmouth named Andrew Schumann who he had become a Christian in high school, but he had gone to one of these high schools, Exeter, which is one of these super elite college prep high schools. Mark Zuckerberg graduated four months before he in, this Andrew entered. Um, you know, people like President Ulysses S. Grant went there. And it used mm-hmm. to be that at Exeter, if you got into Exeter, you had an, an automatic on-ramp into Harvard. Like if you, mm-hmm. they, everyone who went to Exeter, this is years ago, you know, hundreds of years ago, so that you basically got to, you basically went straight to Harvard. And so, Andrew went to this school when he was 14, like a lot of these college preps. And, you know, he, he totally bought into the ethos of, you know, people loving Jesus was not a a mental exercise. It was any, any amount of Christianity was an exercise of just faith and emotions. And so he, he wasn't interested in it um, until the secular worldview kind of began to fall apart a little bit. And so he started reading C.S. Lewis. Um, one of his professors in Oxford, like astrophysicist, PhD, um, he was actually Christian and Andrew had no ability to think through, oh my gosh, how does this guy go to church every Sunday? And yet he's really smart. Huh. Long story short, he, um, he started a little Bible study with three of his, he could identify three out of a thousand students that were Christians, started a little Bible study in like the most remote part of the campus on the library um, it ended, grew to 40 by the time he graduated. And then when he got to Dartmouth as a freshman, he really wanted to be more public with his faith. And so he, along with a couple other people, started this Christian thought journal because campuses have these thought journals, whether they're about art or politics or whatever, they're doing different things. And so he thought, well, you know, his, you know, he, his college roommate looked, he was like, when Andrew was talking about C.S. Lewis, he looked at his, he looked at Andrew and he was, you mean Christians think? And Andrew was like, yeah, actually, that's an unlock. So they started this Christian thought journal, and it, they called it the Apologia. Um, there are 4,500 students at Dartmouth at the time. The first week it was published, you know, a 1,000 people picked it up. 
Um, and that has now ballooned to Harvard has one called Ichthus. Um, Berkeley has one called TOG, which stands for To an Unknown God from, um, from Acts you know, 17. Yeah. Um, University of Minnesota, I love theirs. Theirs is called Between Two Cities because, hmm. you know, yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you have, now you have about 30 colleges that have these Christian thought journals at these top universities and Veritas have adopted this thing and it's called the Augustine Collective. And so one of the things we're doing is not just these very big public forums, but we're actually equipping and training and deploying 500 plus student editors, mm-hmm. writers into doing the student-led Christian thought journals on their campuses. And so it's awesome. They do things like text, text for toasties where they'll say, ask any question about Christianity or anything and we'll bring you, because um, in t- toasties in UK is basically a grilled cheese. So text for something and we'll bring you a grilled cheese. And so they, it's kind of their evangelism um, kind of effort to like ask anything and we'll come bring you a grilled cheese. And so Man, they talk I about would, Jesus. It's so cool. I would totally do that. <laughs> you're too old now but no, you know you should see my eating habits <laughs> got it well that's incredible awesome well let's get into the questions yep when it comes to grilled cheese yep <laughs> these are the five alternate questions <laughs> what is, put some rosemary on it by the way has. and grilled cheese with rosemary is amazing really? but anyway huh. yeah really good yeah see yeah that's it, man. The That's only all we needed today. Yeah. Game over. I'll talk. Let's close in prayer. Okay, so the grilled cheese, the the rosemary, like how mm-hmm. do you how do you do grilled cheese with rosemary? You just put rosemary on. You just it. put oh, rosemary inside? on. It. Yeah. Oh. So it melts within the cheese. It's really good. <laughs> He's Canadian. He'll never do it. <laughs> as long right. as I have some maple syrup and some ketchup, <laughs> exactly. I'm good to go. <laughs> All right, let's get into our first question. Uh, who are you presently learning from? Yeah, I thought about this a little bit. I would say there's obviously the typical people that people would say, you know, like I'm learning from my pastor. Um, I'm learning from, which happens to be Tim Tim and Kathy Keller, you know, mm-hmm. or, or different authors and obviously scriptures. And so I try to think a little bit about who are the people that I'm learning from that are not necessarily expected to hear um, in these conversations. And I would say one, I'm learning from digital natives. So a lot of the work that we're thinking about right now is how do we actually reach Gen Z? Cause we're, that's the target. That's the group that's in college right now. And so we're doing a lot of listening and talking to current college students about how they actually interact with spiritual things. What are the questions they're actually asking? You know, we're not as interested, the work that we're doing, we're not interested in questions Christians are asking. We're interested in questions that all people are asking and then having a Christian perspective on it. And so to, to talk to different people that are that age and how they're actually accessing kind of those conversations and resources and all of that, digital natives are huge for us right now. And then I would say the other people, the other type of group that I'm learning from would be great storytellers. So I'm the, what I work on on the content side of Veritas is actually thinking about storytelling. And there's this one guy, for example, Gary Vaynerchuk. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. Yeah, Gary 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 (laughs) V. Gary V. Yeah. So he's like somebody that I'm really following closely, Mm. especially as he thinks about different platforms um, that, you know, doing native content for them. Um, And the other within storytellers. um, So that's on our like creation side. But when we're thinking about what, what the speakers we want to have for Veritas forums or the people whose content we want to feature. Um, Jonathan Haidt, who's at NYU, he's a social psychologist, started an organization called Heterodox Academy. He really gave, he was interviewed by Krista Tippett on, on being a couple years ago, right around when his excellent book, um, The Righteous Mind came out. And he used this phrase called unexpected validator. And what he said is that if you bring a bunch of people, if, if you do these large group events of, of any events, um, 
people generally don't go in and change their minds based on the content that they hear from the stage. They usually come in and they already know what they think. They're either going to get more weapons they can use, intellectual weapons they can use against people or kind of come away thinking, oh, I'm right. and All of those types of things. But he said the one thing that does change people's mind and moves the needle is when you have an unexpected validator say something. And what he means by that is that you have somebody who you wouldn't expect to say something, says something, and your plausibility structures are created. So I'll give you an example. When we think about Veritas forums at the schools that we're on, um, the people are not as interested in hearing a theologian or a pastor say that Jesus rose from the dead and give proof for it. Because of course he believes that, like he gets paid to believe that <laughs> that's kind of that's like, he'll lose his yeah. job <laughs> he if he says anything else. So he, he, they're skeptical of that. Right. But somebody who's an MIT, like MIT data driven researcher who, for example, Roz Picard, who's, um, who's pro, her, her testimony was featured in Christianity Today um, earlier this month. She's one of our, she's one of our speakers and very good friends of Veritas. She's a data driven, she coined the term effective computing, which is helping computers and automation actually have, have emotions, which is a mate, which is helping out like people with autism, for example, hmm. crazy. Um, when you have her say Jesus rose from the dead, you kind of sit up because yeah. you're, you go, you, you shouldn't, your profile isn't somebody who would normally say that. Okay. And so those are the types of people that for us, we are thinking through how do, how do we get them to speak about their faith and okay. to speak about how, like how it works? Because the co current college students are just, that's what's going to create possibility structures for them. If I love that. Makes that. Sense. I love that because I do think that it's practical for, it's practical for leaders that are listening as well, whether they're in a church or in a business, because, you know, <clears throat> I, I think if I look back, at different unique situations where, you know, the tide was turned. There are some really interesting stories when I think about it of the unexpected validator. You know, it's the, it, it really is that curmudgeon that I thought would never, ever move on this change that we were trying to implement in the church yeah. and because of their perspective and then having them get up yeah, exactly, and, and say that, man, that just completely turned the tide. Exactly. So when I, th I'll give you a great example. I normally don't talk about this, but I'm a complementarian and nobody expects that. Like I'm like, I hate those terms and I'm much, I'm much like softer about it, but yeah. I am Ivy league educated attorney who's single at 42, who's opinionated and who manages men. And yet I'm sitting here going, yeah, I'm actually a, a complementarian. So I have so many friends who come up to me and they say, how are you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. they're not going up to the typical, you know, a stereotypical, I should say female, um, who's like, Oh, of course you are. Right. Um, so you need to get, I think when you're trying to move the needle on people's opinions who disagree with you, you need to get somebody up there who's like, nobody expects to say what they're saying. <laughs> it really helps. That's, that's super practical. Thank you for that. Now, Bethany, uh, when you look at your leadership right now and, and the team that you lead, uh, what would you say the main point of emphasis is? Yeah, that's a great question. I said, I mentioned earlier that we're, we're moving into a little bit of a 2.0 experience. Um, and basically what that means is that, um, that means a couple things, but two of the, two of the things that I've thought about is because we started, we a little bit started off as a product. The Veritas forum was a product, not, it didn't start off as a mission necessarily. Mm. Um, and you know, these were college kids starting an event and they didn't know that it would 27 years later be, you know, like something that would last long. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things we're trying to think through is how do we have one holistic vision and message for something that feels a little bit disconnected right now. And so we have, like you mentioned um, that you've engaged with our YouTube channel. Well, how does the YouTube channel, which has made perhaps a different demographic than the college students that we're working on and the campus events from these journals. And so one of the, one of the things we're trying to 
think through is going from what I'm calling like a Frankenstein organization a little bit to one holistic narrative. And so, you know, that's one thing. The other thing I would say we're working on is we're in a little bit of a reorg um, on thinking through the different emphasis we're having. And that you guys is so hard. When I was at, I was at the New York stock exchange. I worked on wall street um, after college and we merged with um, Archipelago, which was a digital only um, plat- exchange platform. Mm. And um, it was the first, and we were going public all in the same 214 year old institution that was quasi governmental, was going public for the first time ever. We were going to be traded on the New York Stock Exchange. It was a huge deal. And we were merging, which meant there, were, which meant there was a lot of redundancy in staff. So not everybody was going to get a job at the end okay. of the day. Um, and I remember too getting like the document learning that the CFO, like one of the CFOs um, was actually going to be moved out. I think before that CFO knew, like Mm -hmm. I just came across my desk and I very much remember my boss coming into me and I was like 26 and she was an she was an EVP. She was like, you know, one of the top people in charge. And she looks at me and she said to me, Bethany, don't worry. You're not, you have a job. You're not going to me a fire. Now I had come there from D. So if she had said anything less, I probably would have been like, are you kidding me? Like yeah. I moved my life for you. <laughs> but I had no idea the le- what she kept me from because there's so much fear when like, am I going to lose my job? Yeah, I have true. kids, like all of this. And so I was 26. I had no ability to process that. But now I'm 42. People report to me, we're going through, you know, some pain points. We love everyone on our team, which is a great place to be in. But, you know, we have it, we hired for one profile and now we have different, we need a different profile for different activities. Mm -hmm. And so what does it look like to think through how do we shepherd and care for the people we have on our team who we love? but also think through what's the work that we actually feel called to do in the future. And so I would say that's, that's actually a little bit of the point of emphasis right now is how to, how to shepherd people well, but at the same time, how to accomplish the calling and vision of the mission organization. Um, And sometimes this conflicts. So, yeah, well, Bethany, that's, I mean, that's super, that's super relevant to what we face with Lifeway leadership as we help churches oh, yeah. move from, um, and church leaders and pastors move from being doers to equippers. And a lot of churches have hired just specialists, you know, the best kids yep. minister or kids leader who knows how to do a puppet show. And it's like, well, yep. we don't want you to be the center of attention. <laughs> you need to be mm-hmm. equipping leaders and instead. And so, so what advice would you give pastors and church leaders then who are, who are the same way, you know, they've inherited a team who, you know, got the church to where it is right now, but the church is shrinking and not engaging with society and culture as they used to. And, and they see that they need to have more equippers. Um, what advice would you give them in terms of a developmental approach with their staff and all that? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I would say here's some things to consider. I wouldn't probably say here's some advice cause we're still in the middle of it. Um, But I would say some of the things I'm thinking through is don't be afraid to make hard decisions and not just not because necessarily everything you do is great, but because God has a plan for different people's lives and you need to trust in that more than you trust in your own ability to take care of everybody. Mm. Um, And so I think that's where we sometimes get in trouble and you end up keeping people who maybe don't need to actually stay on the team um, because you're afraid of letting them down or fear is driving it. It's not confidence and faith. And so I would say that don't like, don't be afraid to make those hard decisions. Um, But also like, you know, I would say if you have somebody that doesn't exactly fit something, but they have what some people call fluid intelligence. So fluid intelligence would just be like people who get stuff done. Like they're just like, I want those kind of people on my team all the time. And so because they have fluid intelligence, they're able to just do anything. So if you can find, if you can find somebody like that, hopefully you can bring them along, along with you to have the same thought journey that you're with. So it's not you telling them, here's what we're doing. You're actually inviting them into the process of this is the struggle we're having. How do you see yourself? Um, mm, and so like ha- having like common, common conversations like that has been super helpful. Yeah, that is super helpful. 
Okay. Moving to the next question, and this is, you know, we always want to put aside spiritual disciplines. Other than spiritual disciplines, what is the one or two things that you find you have to do every day to stay sharp as uh, a leader? Yeah, it was so funny. I listened to, you know, one of your pod, your one of your recent podcasts, and I was so surprised when two, I think I listened to two of them, and neither one of them said something that to me was like the most obvious. Yeah, <laughs> and, and like I would be curious what y'all would say, but the first one I thought was apologize. Like I apologize on the regular, as a millennial would say, like very regularly, because. What I think sets apart a Christian leader is not necessarily we're any better, but we we recognize we're we're we where we're not better. Mm, and so I'm apologizing quite a bit actually with my with my team of I'm so sorry I put you in this position or I didn't budget this correctly and now you're having to feel the effects of it. Um or, you know, will you forgive me for, um, I was in the middle of X and Y and I responded to you curtly. I'm sorry for that. Um, and so, you know, I apologize pretty regularly. Um, you know, it's not like a daily discipline, but I mean, in terms of like, Oh, I do that, but I do it really regularly of, I'm sorry. Um, will you forgive me? Or I'm sorry. Um, I I wish I could have a do over. Mm. Um, that's good. I'm I'm surprised. I don't surprise nobody else has said that, or yeah. at least the ones I've, I've read, listened to. I've never heard it either. Since and the beginning. And and Bethany, you know, if you didn't tell me that you grew up in Florida and then New York, they I would have thought you were Canadian because oh. <laughs> you know I'm Canadian, and you know I like saying you know you just all you gotta do is say sorry instead of sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe then nobody will uh, nobody will know that I'm actually apologizing. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, And then I know you guys said no spiritual disciplines, but this is something that I kind of repeat this because I'm such an idiot sometimes. And there's this Psalm um, where it says, satisfy me in the morning with your unfailing love, Psalm 90. Mm. And I love that. So, you know, you can put whatever spiritual discipline you want in there. But the biggest thing for me is I, if before I go out into the world and I'm going to be tempted to be satisfied in everything else, whether it's my boss's approval or whether it's somebody on Twitter retweeting me or if it's um, my team that they, that they're happy in their job and make, that makes me feel good when they're happy in their job. Um, I have to, I'm going to be tempted to find satisfaction everywhere else to fill up that empty tank. Um, And so for me, what I try to do is I try to, I try to satisfy my, I try to have my heart in a place where it's satisfied with God's unfailing love. So it's full, and then I operate out of that fullness. It doesn't happen every day for sure, mm. but that's kind of the daily goal before I even walk out the door in some ways, or it's something I'm saying throughout the day of, yeah. you know, why am I reacting to something? Okay, I'm not satisfied in the Lord's love. I'm trying to find it somewhere else. Mm. So, Well, that's yeah. good. That's good. So before we get to our next question, we just want to hear a quick word from our sponsor for today. Small groups typically meet once a week, but life happens every day. That's why LifeWay created the Daily Discipleship Guide. This new addition to the Bible Studies for Life curriculum is used at the weekly meeting to help generate discussion, but it also contains five daily devotions to reinforce the learning all week long. This consistent time in God's Word helps create the habit of daily Bible reading, an essential behavior for growing disciples. You can download four free sessions of the Daily Discipleship Guide at BibleStudiesForLife.com slash DDG. That's BibleStudiesForLife.com slash DDG. Now back to the podcast. All right. So Bethany, uh, the next question is what leadership in your home looks like. We love to, yeah. What, what, what does that look like in your, in your life? Yeah. Let me ask you guys a question. Have you guys ever had a single person be interviewed? Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, recently, yeah. Annie F. Downs. Oh yeah. Yeah. What did she, I'm curious if she's what she said. Sorry, I can't remember. There <laughs> you go with the sorry. Sorry, it was a really good interview, though. So sorry. Sorry. Delete. delete, delete. Yeah. 
No, I'm curious, Bethany, as you, because you shared uh, as a 42-year-old single woman uh, yeah. who is also, I mean, uh, you know, as a complementarian and, you know, go go on. Uh, when you hear that question and for you, I mean, what, yeah, we just love for you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because actually, okay, do you remember now, Annie F. Downs, she was like, <laughs> she said something to the effect of uh, she wants to get married. And then she actually went to a pretty vulnerable place and what she had said and in, in terms of, yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't need to repeat for everyone on, on, I'll on have there, to go back and listen to yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think for when I, when I first saw this question, I thought, Oh gosh, like home, I live alone. Like I live in my own apartment. Um, it feels really different than the conversations that I listened to prior to this on the podcast. And so I thought, wow, yeah. What does leadership Leadership, I guess, presumes you have people to lead. So I started wondering what that looks like at home. Um, but then I thought, gosh, how do you define home? Mm. And so if you if you go past my actual house, then you could maybe the first place a Christian might think about is church. Mm. Um, I I I don't know how other leaders do it, but I find it pretty difficult to be leading at the level that I'm leading at um, at my organization and also be a very invested lay leader in my church. I know some people do it. Um, I find that really hard. So at the church I've been attending, I was, when I was at Redeemer in New York for 13 years, I was pretty involved um, as a leader, but at this church, just because I'm still adjusting to Boston, I've just kind of been an attendee. Um, And it's, it's an Anglican church, ACNA, um, fantastic pastor. But I would say, um, the way that for me, the home kind of works there is that one of the beautiful things about the ACNA church is we have this daily office. So you're reading the same scriptures that every other person, presumably that every other person in the church is reading. And so I actually feel, even though I'm single, that I'm a part of this family because there are, there are three prayers a day. There's a daily colics in the evening. We're all praying. It's not just reading the same things. We're all praying the same things. Even if my neighbor is, you know, many blocks away. Hmm. And one beautiful thing about that is if I'm over at a friend's house, a friend from church's house, and it happens to be like in the evening after dinner, it's not happened infrequently where we will pull out the, um, the book, the, the book, book of like the, the daily office and we'll actually do it while I'm with them at their house. Oh, cool. Um, which is really beautiful because I'd be doing it alone, but since I'm there, it's really nice to be able to do it with them. So I'm really close to this one family that goes to our church. I'm their daughter is my goddaughter. Um, and so we've done it several times um, when I've been with them of let's just pull it out and we'll just do it together. That's so, so that's very cool. which is really great. Yeah. I wish more churches had the ability to have single, even if it's just like the philosophical level of, I feel like I'm with a family tonight, even though I'm sitting here alone. You know, does that yeah. make sense? No, completely. I mean, in my life group, the majority of uh, those in, in, in my life group are all uh, married couples, but we do have two <laughs> single ladies who, I mean, we don't, we obviously don't talk about, we don't do parenting or marriage curriculum as part of our life group. I mean, that's just something we decided from the beginning because we just wanted it to be a place of home. So even when we have all the kids coming up as well, it's just so cool to see uh, the family, you know, that sense of broader church family come together. Yeah, that's right. And I think too, as, as like the culture goes the way it is going, you're going to have people like my good friend, Sam Aldery, who's same-sex attracted, likely never getting married. You're going to have people like me who, I mean, my friend, my secular friends in New York look at me and they're like, you're, you're, you know, they say the opposite from what church people say. They say to me, oh, your sex life is deviant, Bethany, because I'm not having sex. They say that to me. Mm. And so, because I'm not in their minds living out to the, you know, what human beings should do. And Mm. so if we're good, if, if the church is going to have this narrative of, you know, sexual orthodoxy matters and you should only marry Christians and those are all fine and good. But if family, if the church isn't creating a place for people who don't have out of obedience to Christ, don't have, you know, um, the, the traditional nuclear family, it's got to create a space where those people are invited in. And so 
that's been really fun. It's fun for me to hear that you're saying, yeah, we've decided certain things that perhaps if the single women weren't a part of it, you would do a family Bible study, you know, or mm. with children parenting, but you've actually compromised for that, which mm. is beautiful. That's cool. So, so Bethany, I don't know if this is too personal then, but uh, I mean, what advice would you give to other single? Uh, I mean, do you number one, feel called to uh, singleness and number two, what advice would you give other leaders, both female and male uh, who are single right now? Yeah, I don't, I mean, the, I don't feel called to singleness and I'm not really sure what that means necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I just kind of threw it out there and I just wanted to hear your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I think calling in a lot of ways is something you see in retrospect much more than people. I mean, and I mean that vocationally and everything. So if I'm single at 85, I'll probably be like, yeah, I think I was called to that, you know? Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't, but I'm also not at the age where I have anxiety about it anymore. So I mm. think in my mid thirties, I was like, I'm absolutely not called. I definitely want to get married. And now I'm like, well, I actually know how to live without a husband now. And it's, you know, like, it's not, it's not a death wish, you know, it's not yeah. like a death penalty. Um, having said that, I think the reason why Boston has been hard is because my community, like I have 13 years of friends in New York and I've said, I, I know how at this point to live without a spouse. I don't know how it is. I don't know how you live without friends and community and that's, what's been hard. And so that piece to me is um, really necessary. But um, in terms of, yeah, I think in terms of single leaders, that's kind of the, that's kind of the key takeaway is um, to to be, to have, I think one of the most beautiful things about marriage that I admire so much for people who are married that I'm so godly jealous for is that daily forgiveness piece and the daily living with people that you have to like forgive all the time. And yet you love them all in the midst of it. I think in 2019, it's very easy to just like put like, Oh, I'm mad at you or we disagree. And I'm never going to talk. I'm not going to talk to you for a while. Mm-hmm. When, when you're married, you don't have that option. Right. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, very true. <laughs> like you have to sleep in the same bed tonight, or unless you have a guest room, I guess you can take a little break, but, <laughs> um, but when you're single, especially if you live alone, it's really easy to cultivate that separatist mindset. Okay. And so what I would say, if you're single and you're a leader, you actually need to actively seek out those people that, um, that you have to have that daily thing, people who know your daily stuff um, and you're able to be vulnerable with. And so, you know, that's hard to find because leaders, I mean, Andy Crouch writes about this beautifully about hidden vulnerability. I can't really share. I mean, even with you guys today, I can't really share everything because there's some things that people shouldn't know or, you know, that. And so you do have to bear some of that hidden vulnerability, but there should be people, you know, like maybe two or three people in your life that they are with you in that. And they are, they are confidential. They don't share anything. Um, and they're totally trustworthy. Um, I don't know how people do it without those people in life, but yeah. That's huge. That's huge. Thank you. All right. So let's move to our last question. And that is, what would you tell your 20 year old self about preparing to lead? I mean, you're, you're working with, uh, young, sharp, aggressive students all the time. Uh, so I'm sure that you get to do this somewhat. Um, but what would you tell yourself about preparing to lead? Well, it's funny you you say that. Yes, I do work with 20-year-olds all the time. Having said that, when I was 20, it was in 1999. <laughs> like mm. that 20 years ago, or I guess that was 20 years ago was 1999. But like when I was 20, it was in the 90s. It was like, I was. it must have been like 97, which is a totally different age than 20-year-olds are now. Um, and so these 20 year olds, the two things I would say to them is one changing your world is like a myth, like you or changing the world is a myth. And so I would think through much more contextually, what does it mean to change your family, your organization, your church? Um, you know, I worked when I was 22, I was already working on Capitol Hill and working for a congressman and people I'm sure would think, Oh, that's changing the world. But like, I think 60 to 70% of what I did was email. Like it doesn't look like changing the world that much. Um, but 
it, it was changing our world. Like it was really interesting to work for the first pe- the people in the first district of Florida that they had needs and we helped think about those and represent them. And that was our small little world that we worked with. And then I would say the other thing goes back to email as well, where it's kind of like be patient. Mm-hmm. Um, I often give the example of it's like learning to play the piano. So my brother and I both took piano lessons when we were growing up and he, you know, you start with the scales. I don't know if you guys have played, have y'all played instruments? Yes. Yeah. 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 What, which ones did you play? Piano for a couple of years, but then I ended up doing violin for quite a while. Oh, violin's so hard. (laughs) It took a long time. (laughs) Trumpet and piano. Both. Trumpet and piano. Not very well. Oh yeah. (laughs) And not very long. And not very long. Yeah. So the beginning, and my guess is, did you, you didn't like it? The piano or the trumpet? Uh, I liked it. It was just, it, I mean, okay. So trumpet was when I was like younger in middle school and I was much more concerned with, oh, uh, this is not cool. (laughs) This is fine now. But when I get into high school, if I'm still playing the trumpet, because I also played, you know, other sports and stuff. Yeah. So I was way too self-conscious about that. <laughs> he didn't think it was cool. And then probably the main reason I took piano in college was there was a girl involved, of course. Got it. Yeah. So Got it. judge me. <laughs> Feel free. That's good. Well, the, my brother also did sports, did what he was all state for the state of Florida baseball. He was amazing. We grew up with a batting cage in our backyard, like mm. just amazing athlete. I played a little bit of basketball, quit, but I took piano. He and I both started taking piano when we were young, like in elementary school. And, um, you know, the first thing you do is scales. It's not that exciting. Um, he quit after a couple months. I continued on by the time I was in high school, senior year, I was playing, I was having fun. Yeah. I was playing Rachmaninoff. I was playing, Chicago, you know, like anything you could give me. Yeah. I love to sight read. My piano teacher had dual, had two grands. So we would play dueling duets. It was so fun, but it wasn't fun for like 10 years. Yeah, like right. it took, like scales were really boring. And I think that, um, you know, and Zach, my brother did the same thing, but with baseball, he did, you know, very, he was very methodical about getting the skills right. The equivalent of scales for him, you know? Um, and then he got really good and then it became fun. And any job is the same and career is the same way. Like if I were to say in my 20, I'd be like, be patient. You do not know what you're growing in yet. Um, but you just need to practice those skills and you will eventually, you won't even realize it, but you will eventually get to the point where when you're faithful in small things, you will become, you will become um, more competent in bigger things. Um, That's really good. But you know, at 20, I don't know that I would have listened to me. So (laughs) maybe I should, maybe I should say when you're 20 year old, just listen to your 42 year old self. Like that's (laughs) that's actually what you should do. (laughs) We do need to get a, a 20 year old on here sometime. And say, what would you tell your 42 year old self? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, Bethany, that's so, that's so well put. And I'm, I'm I'm so glad you brought the musical example up too, because I mean, my kids are my, my two girls, uh, my older ones, they're the the first one. I mean, they're both practicing by themselves now on piano, which is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. They've gotten over that hump and there's been many tears, you know, cried. I can't do this. This doesn't make any sense, but you know, they've gotten over that initial hump and, you know, come home from work. And they want to quit. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then I, I come home from work and I'm like, Whoa, that actually sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. And it's just, you know, but, but today in today's culture where everything is instant, man, yeah. how important is that lesson? Yeah. 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 It's true. But you have, you have younger, I mean, I'm sure you've read about this in the wall street journal, whatever, where now, now like young job applicants are, they're ghosting. So they're not just ghosting on relationships on a personal level, which you might've seen, but I don't know if you've seen, but they're like ghosting on job interviews. I've had people who do an interview and then they just never thought like I email, I email them and say, Hey, I would love to talk with you more. They just never respond or ghosting, like not showing up the next day at work. Like that's happening. And so, 
Oh yeah. Yeah. You should look into it, but yeah, I've there's seen it with interns. Yeah. Sure. Like, um, yeah. cause we run the internship program at Lifeway and there'll be like a thousand applications. I bet. And then there, uh, I mean, I shouldn't say like a thousand, there are, there are over a thousand <laughs> applications and then yeah. like 30 will make it. But that interview process, you almost always have somebody that just, you know, kind of self-selects out and then ghosts on you and doesn't return emails or phone calls or anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's bizarre yeah. to me. Yeah. It's crazy. But then, you know, it's the ghosting and just not showing up at work the next day. And like the thing I just don't want the 20 year olds to think is that, you know, don't do that number one, but don't do it just cause it's, it's a lot of work. Hmm. Like that's, that's just a part of it. That's normal. If you switch, if you think the problem is you just need to get a different job, you're going to find out actually you're just, you're taking your problem to the next job too. Yeah, you're right. It's all hard. And so there's internal things you need to work through versus just changing your circumstances first. So yeah. Man, that's so good. Thank you, Bethany, for your time, for the work that you're doing. I mean, it's it's what you're doing at the Veritas uh, Forum is is near and dear to my heart because Campus Crusade for Christ, um, oh, yeah. you know, crew, power to change yeah. up in Canada. Was, I mean, it was so influential to my calling to ministry where I met my wife. Uh, we still have a ton of friends who are in campus ministry. So, uh, man, yeah. I, I just love the way that uh, y'all are leading the way and just continuing to engage uh, because those university years are so critical to formation and development. You know, what's interesting is today uh, at the time of this recording, we also re recorded with Dahadi Lewis this morning. We were talking about how important, you know, family is and mm. the table is and, you know, the Sims thing that they do and you talking about family and when I think back to my college experience as well, I would not be sitting here if it wasn't for Baptist Student Union. Mm -hmm. Same thing. Here's my deal. I had horrible roommates my first semester and so much <laughs> so that I, I like, I've got to get out of here. Where can I find some nerds that will not steal my stuff or, you know, do like, where could I find some decent roommates? And I was like, oh, I bet there's some, I bet there's some like really normal um, <laughs> you're so yeah. lame people. Sorry, it was bad. <laughs> but that was, I'm telling you my logic. Todd, Todd is the, <laughs> the Abercrombie and Fitch model kind of guy. That's who he was in college. So just so, FYI. <laughs> but sure I was like, well, how can I find, how can I find, you know, and what happened was I found a couple guys who were really awesome guys. And through uh, that relationship and through the relationships of, Christian families during my college experience is is how I ended up here, you know, how I ended up in ministry. Hmm. And it's so important. Yeah. Um, it, it's so important. Those are very formative times. I was a yeah. philosophy major. I could have gone the complete opposite way yeah. for sure. Yeah. 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 So uh, actually, Bethany, sorry, I know it sounded like we were yeah. wrapping up. Just, <laughs> just sorry. In light of everything we've just been sharing and knowing that a lot of our listeners are in churches and uh, church leaders and also those outside of church uh, leadership are listening in too. But if, if you were to give a word of advice to churches who have colleges, universities in their towns, what advice would you give them in regards to reaching uh, the yeah. colleges and university students? I would give, I mean, one piece of advice as a lot of nuance. So yeah. I, but I would say create a culture where curiosity and doubt are totally welcome because um, they, psychologists say there are three stages. There are three most significant moments in a, in the, in personality development. One is when you're like three years old, two or three years old, and a child is deciding what is the, where is the line between me and my parent? Hmm. And so they're figuring out who they are as an individual. The second one is in middle school when they're actually figuring out, okay, here are my friends and my family where like, who, who do I want to hang out with? So you see a lot of, you know, middle schoolers hanging out with their friends and like being annoyed with their family. And then in college, when you go away, it's kind of the last really big moment of someone's development where they're for the first time, many of them are encountering different worldviews. 
And so they start to wonder, is what my home worldview or my church or the, you know, the, my, the new worldviews I'm encountering, which are more compelling. So our research shows that 42% of students who are raised in Christian homes leave the faith by the time they graduate college. And so, which is pretty significant. Yeah. Um, and so what we're trying to say is we need to, uh, what my recommendation would be, you need to create a culture where, um, where people who, who say they're Christians or they're, they grew up in a Christian home, they're not quite sure that they're able to ask any question, not be made fun of, not feel weird about it. And you also create a place where people who aren't quite yet Christians don't feel totally awkward for coming. Um, because I mean, Sam Albury and I were talking about this. He said, he said it the perfect example. He said, I often tell pastors to go get pedicures because if a path and make, and when you go get a pedicure, there's a whole culture in the, in the spa world that when I walk in, you know, I, I know exactly what to do. I go pick out the color that I want. You know, I know how to do it, but a man who goes in to go get a pedicure, it's like a totally different world. Hmm. And he said, take note how you feel because that's how non-Christians feel when they walk into your church. <laughs> that's incredible. Isn't wow. that great? Wow. And so that to me, if you can get wow. that. So I was at church one time, I remember, and somewhere not, not Redeemer. And all of a sudden they started singing a song that wasn't on the list. And I remember, and I'm a Christian going, I feel super out of place right now. I don't know this song. Apparently there are lyrics because everybody else is singing it. I felt so alone in this church. And if I weren't a Christian, and I, I probably had that 15 times happen already. Um, and so to really think through where are the spaces we're inviting them to, is it always at the church? Or maybe we go to their places and we go to coffee shops. Like always be thinking through, how do we make this really, how do I go out and not just make them come to me um, so that they feel more comfortable? So anyway... That's, that's what I would say. That's a great you. ending. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bethany. And we'll be sure to put all the links in the show notes. And yes. Yeah, so thanks. many links. I'm yes. so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it'll be great. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing and, and the way that you're leading. So thank yeah. you, Bethany. Great. Well, that was a wonderful interview that we had with Bethany. So fun. Yeah, it was fun. And even as after we stopped recording, we just kept on talking and talking and talking. So it's, it was, it was super cool to, it was my first time meeting anyone who's connected with the Veritas forum. So that was neat to, that was neat for me personally, but you know, as we wrap up this episode, we do want to encourage you to check out the Rainer on leadership podcast. They're part of our podcast network family and also check out Chris Surratt's new book, leading small groups, right. how to gather, launch, lead and multiply your small group. Both are great resources. Uh, he's actually one of the hosts on our network as well. Both are. Yeah, yeah, they both are. So so be sure to grab keep a copy of that. Keep it in the family, dude. Yeah, keep it in the family. Hey, here's the interesting thing, though. I think, you know, um, for a lot of our listeners, they would already know that, you know, Tom Rayner, Dr. Rayner, uh, left Lifeway quite yeah. Yeah. several months ago. Do we still have to call him Dr. Rayner? I don't know. <laughs> I didn't call him Dr. Rainer when I was in seminary yeah. with him. So Wait, you professor. didn't call your professor a doctor? No. Oh. I, I was, thought that was kind of like standard fare. Uh, for probably for most people. <laughs> that was a different dude. <laughs> Not for him. <laughs> um, now, I called him Dr. Rainer once I got here, though. Yeah. And publicly. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I mean, I think most people were called him Rainer. Yeah. I called everybody by their last name. Yeah. So. Yeah. But anyway... I have no idea why I was talking about that. No, it's fun. That's part of the podcast, right? <laughs> and for the two people who are still listening, <laughs> <woo-hoo>! <laughs> we'll catch you guys next week.